Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everyone, thanks for joining. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and some hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of March 6, 2023. So Lee, one of the things I want to start out with, which you know might be kind of a unique article for me to share since we, we normally don't harp on IOCs, but I kind of want to kind of breathe some a breath of fresh air into how I take away from some IOCs. And it's actually a, a talosintelligence.com, you know, Talos Group, one of their blogs, and they do these like threat roundup, uh, and they did the threat roundup for February 24th through March 3rd. So it looks like it's a weekly thing. And basically they identify kind of like the top, um, say alerts, so to speak, or things they identify for that week. I mean, the very top was the nano core dropper and they have like the net wire dropper and so forth. And then in the threat breakdown, they kind of talk about different indicators. And in these indicators, you know, they start off with some registry keys, some mutexes, IP addresses, domains, and files and directories that were created or associated. And then they get into the file hashes. But what I really like about this report is they kind of group the IOCs together. Like for instance, the first one with the nanocore dropper, They're, they say it's like the top or that's 20 samples. So so there's some variability between them and what like what happens the most common occurrence between those 20 samples as far as what registry keys they touch and things they interact with. And I know a lot of times, you know, when I see IOCs, I kind of jump away a little bit and try to focus on other things first, other than just kind of getting some IOCs out the door for, you know, people to run and to you know, search back on just in case uh, for the easier IOCs to look up. But um, the thing that I think is really important to pay attention here is, for instance, when I mean, they list registry keys and you can see what registry keys are hit the most or what registry keys are targeted. And, and you know, it's very, and I see this across a lot of malware in any report, but, you know, it shows the commonality of them using the registry run keys or, for instance, the nanocore dropper. So, you know, they show what values, you know, get dropped everywhere. Uh, but you know, that was kind of interesting to see, like you can see a pattern. And when you start seeing patterns in IOCs, then there might be a better way to potentially look at identifying that when hunting for it or possibly building a detection around it. And so, and then the other things I like to look at is like what files and directories are being targeted a lot. One, sometimes you get an interesting naming convention that they try to use, a pattern of random characters or, you know, uh, the directories that they specifically target based on, you know, access, for instance, for instance, like they seem to target a lot of the, the environment variable for temp directories or app data, which is common. Like we see that a lot of easily accessible stuff, but there's, you know, I think these patterns kind of stand out over time. And then like, you know, dropping down to another sample, you can see where they target like policies. So how defenders set up and configured. So, you know, interesting things look, look at there. And then, when I talked about looking for naming convention patterns for, let's see, what dropper was this? The netwire dropper. You know, if it's something you're concerned about or want to look at, one of the things in the run once keys, you know, the values, their naming convention is a number underscore and then numbers. 
for every single one, there's multiple occurrences that just the numbers change, but that same kind of underscore pattern with a single, you know, with a number ahead of it. Um, and those patterns, I, I think, are always interesting because obviously there's a person behind coding these things, and that's kind of what they decided to do. So I feel like there's a lot of kind of behavioralistic type things you can pull from IOCs, and I kind of wanted to highlight that. Uh, and the other thing to note, I know a lot of people, you know, IP addresses are kind of hard to look for behavior, you know, unless you see them all from the same subnet or, you know, domains is kind of indefinite. But something you can do there for those types of IOCs is look at the top level domain. Is it a standard one like .com or, or .org or is it kind of uniquely rare? Because I'll tell you what, businesses typically rely on the main ones. So, you know, anything outside those main ones might be interesting. Um, and then an analysis that I have looked at personally, but I've read a lot of reports on and talked to some other security professionals about. When it comes to IP addresses, I think one of the interesting things to actually enrich IP addresses with is what ASN those IP addresses belong to. So ASN are the, like the autonomous system. They're like the networks, networks that make up the internet. And usually IP address scopes are kind of assigned or belong to different ASNs. Uh, and typically an organization kind of owns that. And a lot of times it's like an you know, internet service provider or something like that. But uh, some people have done some research and found that a lot of the malicious activities seem to reside with certain ASN numbers. So that's something else that maybe if you were to like take this collections across the board and you kind of root some of those things out. So, you know, if you have a suspicious activity on wrong on IP and it's associated with an ASN that is notorious for having activity go through it, it's an, another good place to start. So yeah, that was kind of my biggest highlight was, you know, IOCs, they're good to be aware of and look at, but obviously you want to look at them differently than just drop and match kind of aspect. So I don't know if you had a time to look at this and what your thoughts were. No, absolutely. So Cisco Talos team, I love these guys. Like this team is consistently putting out amazing information. And if you take a look at the report, you can tell that they take their time, they make sure it's complete, that the, all the information lines up. Like you said, they took the IOCs, broke them up into different way, different sections, they mapped it to the MitreTech framework, they provided screenshots of you know AV warnings or antivirus warnings and stuff like that. And you know, there's like you said, there's a lot you can take away from this. Um, and you hit a lot of the uh, the key points I was gonna mention, especially with you know, you don't just copy and paste these out and hope they work. It's the behaviors, right? So I was thinking about like, you know, how would I prioritize this report with that much information going on? You know, if if it's easier, like if you look at the list of the threats and you already have an internal um, prioritization list, like, hey, we're looking for, you know, Loki bot, like we're look, looking for the raccoon sealer, you know, we're looking for these types of things. Then, you know, you could take the list at top and say, I wanna go straight to this section. But if you get handed this report and they're just saying go with it, you know, how would it, how would you walk through that process? So, you know, I just want to share my thoughts. And like the first thing I would do is of course take all the IOCs, IPs, domain names, hashes, file names, stuff like that. Get that to whoever's job it is. And it might be my job as well. So I'm not saying pass the buck immediately, but you know, create a list and search for your, or in an incident response. So I guess I should say, this is from the incident response side of the house. Take all these indicators and do IOC scanning, right? That will identify an easy win. You might have, you know, if one of the hashes hit, that's a lot quicker than trying to sit back and say, how can we threat hunt 
using this information. Because if you find that you're compromised already, then you don't have time to thread hunt, you know, you have to respond. Now, if you run your IOCs and you find nothing, you know, now it's time to take it into a threat hunting perspective. How can I be meticulous about this? How can I get the best bang and buck? And what I would do personally is I would just take all the registry keys first, throw that into a spreadsheet and see, you know, aggregate the data and see like how many, you know, what are the, my top hitters? See what the top hitter is, research that to see what goal it's trying to accomplish, right? Some, you know, when you modify registry keys, there's many goals that you could be doing, like the current version run, that tells me you're trying for persistence. If you see the Windows Defender exclusion list, you know you're trying to do defense evasion, right? So there, you know, each registry key seems a little different. And you know, mm -hmm. some registry keys even make the machine more vulnerable. But I would take that information, and like you said, a registry key isn't really an indicator, it's more of a behavior because um you know, if you're modifying a registry key, there's a goal at the end, at the end of the day. It's not like a hash or an I or an IP that you can tie back to a specific file, but it's a behavior, and that's where you can start taking a step back. And say, all right, well, are we are we auditing the current version run key? Are we auditing you know all the other registry keys of what they do? Then start taking that approach. And at the the last thing, you know, if you didn't find it, you could always look at, like you said, the directories. Just because the file is not dropped into the directory that it says on the report, how can you start taking a step back? Like if it says user, a specific user in documents, et cetera, you can go straight to that directory. Like for example, the first one says program files, AGP manager, then AGP manager.exe. If you look at that specific location and there's nothing, take a step back, right? All right, don't look for that executable. Just leave AGP Manager in there and see if there were any files that were recently created. If it's not AGP Manager, look in the program files directory and start taking a look at, you know, are there any files that were modified or changed or created recently that might be malicious? And then finally, you know, the using this report, you see the antivirus warnings and screenshots. You can always look for AV, uh, you know, antivirus activity because if something was blocked, that might give you a great place to conduct or start your hunting. Because if you know what's going on, or if, if you look at this report and you read what's going on and you find a AV um, alert that was blocked, you might find all the other indicators. You know, it might've been the payload didn't execute, but they still have initial access, they privilege escalated and so on. But that's how I would approach this. And once again, great report very full of information. Yeah, the uh, one other thing I failed to mention that I liked too is since they give you multiple kind of like I would say malware families or or whatever you want to call them, uh, it's really cool then compare and contrast and see the overlap of some things. Because when you think about when you want to hunt for behaviors, you know, there's targeting, right? I want a specific, this specific threat, I want to know if I could find them. Or there's like the generic behaviors where, hey, a lot of people seem to use this technique or behavior, you know, in general, and I want to be able to see anytime someone uses this and it really helps you highlight, well, what are some things I should be looking at to, to cast my net bigger, essentially? And I think you can derive some of that from some of the information provided. Absolutely. And I mean, if you're in the game of attribution, this kind of gives you an idea of, you know, well, who's using it now? And then you can do that research, whether it be based on, you know, using your threat intel platform or whatnot. Yeah, so that's all I got. What do you what do you got for us? So my first article is from Sentinel One blog. It's called DBAT Loader and Remco's Rat Sweep Eastern Europe. 
So looking at you know what's going on, we got two, we got a loader and then we got a rat. So just a quick rule up, the, the DBAT loader is characterized by the abuse of public cloud infrastructure that hosts its malware and the staging components and the payloads and stuff out on the cloud. And the Remco strat is actively used by many threat actors. And normally it's cyber, cyber crime and espionage being the goal of those attacks. Um, but just to walk, you know, they walk you through the attack. You know, it started with phishing emails that actually had a tar.lz archive attached. Um, and I think last week we mentioned the, um, the roll up of what's going on in 2022. I forget which article it was, but they, you know, if you added up all the phishing percentages, phishing was still 41%. So it was the highest. So this goes along with it, you know. But, you know, these were masqueraded as financial documents. The emails look credible and they were actually coming from compromised private emails, institutions, and organizations. So it looked legitimate. It wasn't, you know, some crazy email name. It was compromised host. So if you did, in fact, correspond with these individuals or these organizations, or you had a mutual, you know, interest with these organizations, I could see how it was you know, how you got compromised. Because what's the saying? It's not if you get fished, it's when you get fished. Um, yeah. But, you know, so then, it, you know, the DBAT loader, it packed Remco's. Once it, once it fell, it looked like legitimate software. And then it reached out to the cloud locations to actually pull down the second stage payload. Now, it, a bat script ran in public libraries directory. And what this did was, it used a user account control or UAC bypass method to get uh, escalated privileges and for the machine to trust it. So what they did is they created a Windows slash System32 directory, but between the Windows and the slash, they put a trailing space. So what this did was it tricked the machine to say, oh, that's system, you know, that's Windows System32 directory. But because they added that that simple space, it now is trusted, but it's also not the standard System32. So there's two separate ones now. And now they started working out of that directory, but because it was System32, it gave them elevated privileges. So then they, you know, they dropped the bat file in there for the second stage. And before they ran it, they um, added that bat file to the exclusion list of Windows Defender. So a lot of stuff going on here from initial to defense evasion, or sorry, to privilege escalation, and to, you know, defense evasion. And then, you know, where they can go with that, you know, the privileges they had is pretty, you know, they could go anywhere, really. Sure, domain admin, and then, you know, whatever their goal is, it seems like they got a very good initial foothold. Uh, some hunt opportunities that I got out of this is that Looking at your network traffic and knowing your environment about which cloud instances or public cloud instances your your organization allows. Um, if you know if it's not being blocked, you know you can take a look at all the cloud infrastructure. You know whether it be uh, Microsoft or Amazon or Google, whatever the case may be, and you can start taking a look at what's common there, and you could you know find anomalies. But that's gonna that's gonna be a lot heavier lift than most because that's you know that comes with time, experience, knowledge of your network, which isn't something you can learn overnight. Or I say, I'll say I can't learn overnight. Some people are you know wizards out there, so more power to them. Uh, but then you could look for file creations in abnormal locations and directories. So you know the bat file being dropped in System32, a public library directory 
if your organization doesn't utilize that location, um, that, that could be an easy win. Uh, and then UAC abuse. This is something that we've we actually covered in Hunter. We have a couple hunt packages based on it. Um, there's many methods of achieving that goal or abusing that. Um, and you know, so learning that topic and trying to figure out how they can do it, that's gonna take some time, but once you figure out what's going on, you, know, you can start really hunting for that. Now they did mention like, you know, uh, how to configure it. Uh, so if you do have a box at home, you know, set it to set the Windows UAC to always notify. That way, you know, if you try to open command prompt as, uh, you know, admin, it'll say, do you really want to do this? And you hit yes or no. So that way it will always notify you. Whereas uh, if it's on the other settings, then the UAC abuse can happen. And I'm actually going to self-plug, but we actually have a Threat Hunt deep dive video on YouTube about UAC bypass. Uh, but what was your big takeaway? Yeah, so I kind of was, you know, thinking about a lot of things you mentioned. But one of the the most interesting interesting thing to me was their their UAC bypass technique to for like the allowed directories by doing trailing spaces, right? So instead of like your C windows, it'd be C windows with a space, so it looks legitimate, and whatever controls are built into the system sees it as a legitimate privileged location, even though it's not the actual privileged location. So that was interesting to me um, because I've heard of it. I haven't really seen it used that much for some of the things I've looked at, but then also they show where you can do the trailing spaces, not even on the last word in the, the directory path. You can do it on, you know, they had the C windows space in the slash system 32. And I didn't know it worked there. Um, so interesting kind of behaviors to look for there, but then it got me thinking as well. It's a good time for you to understand how do your logging and security tools see that? Because, you know, there's a lot of parsing that happens in tools. And a lot of times they'll cut off the record when they see a space. In this case, as long as you've got command line, it looks like you'd be okay because, you know, they were doing, you know, quotes, quotations to in, include it as a full string. But, you know, for some tools that like tokenize things, you know, they, they might drop that space and you might not be able to detect on that kind of thing. Um, so it's good to know that because obviously I think that's a good thing to look for, that weird behavior, especially if it's using terms that are common to, you know, privileged directories in general. That was like an interesting technique that I thought was, you know, somewhat novel the way they used it and also kind of thinking about how we defend against it. And then the other thing was that, you know, I always think it's interesting when attackers drop legitimate binaries that are vulnerable to elevate because it's like, you know, talk about like, you know, you have the one problem where you have a system that it gets outdated, there's vulnerabilities and bugs that are discovered and you have to patch it to solve that problem. It's such a different problem to say, how do you get rid of all those old binaries that will still run that are vulnerable and are trusted based on how they're built? You know, it's almost like if they're, you can't, like Microsoft, for instance, can't say, well, we don't trust this version anymore because if someone doesn't update to the newest version, then they break people's old stuff. And this binary specific, the EAS invoker, that's actually a Microsoft Exchange binary. So you shouldn't really see it on an endpoint unless it's an Exchange server. And its main role is the, it's called the Microsoft Exchange Active Sync for mobile devices. So it's how the mobile device can sync up with Exchange and have that communication. And what they basically did was they dropped this because they knew they could do a DLL hijackable, you know, execution and dropped a malicious version of the NetUtils DLL next to it so then they could take advantage of that. 
And those techniques are always interesting. Like, right, if you're moving payloads, especially when you see EXEs and DLLs being kind of dropped in the same location within a certain time frame, it might be worth looking at because it seems like I've I've seen this come across a lot where we'll see just executables. And of course, the executables aren't going to fire as malicious. And sometimes DLLs, the way they can pack them or the way they uh, get scanned, don't flag that often. But that the combination between the two actually makes them dangerous. So be thinking about those things as well. Uh, so yeah, those those two parts were the most interesting to me, other than the things you mentioned. Yeah, like how's Microsoft going to say, you know what, PowerShell did good, but we're we're going to get rid of it now. Because right. Right. <laughs> good luck. Uh, but yeah, no, that's all I got. What's next for you? Uh, good question. What should I start with next? So I'm going to start with a big one. I know it was like a race to who was going to claim this when we were trying to figure yeah. out what to talk about. But it's a DFA report, but it's a cool one because it's the 2022 year in review. So basically what they did was looked at all kind of the reports they put together throughout the year and their analysis and kind of did an overview of what they saw. But what I really liked how they did theirs versus some of the other ones you see from some big vendor names is they still kept the same level of technical detail you expect in a normal DFA report with some additional bonuses, right? Like what's common across all the different attacks they were they analyzed and saw, which I think is the biggest strength when it comes to threat hunting, because that's really what you're looking for. If you try to look for every unique thing, you'd be hunting for, you know, more days than a year that exist in a year, right? So you're kind of running out of time when you do it that way. But if you can look for those common things, that's how you get ahead. And they did a really good job breaking that out and they broke it out by kind of the the tactics. So they, you know, talked through some you know, execution, discovery, persistence, you know, they did kick off with some phishing. And so it was a really good way to like, let's look at this in, you know, chunks that are kind of the common chunks we break attacks out in and look at those commonalities and what what do we see, what do we learn with some examples and also some callbacks to their past reports if you want to and dive deeper. So just to kind of touch on some of the things that I saw, which was really cool was, you know, they did a whole phishing breakout of what was common about the phishing and where they went. And there was a great graphic um, that showed like what was the activity, you know, after a fish was successful, just pertaining to the successful fish and like the immediate follow on um, and then kind of like where that led. They had a great graphic for that, but they, one of the things I always focus on, right, is, you know, persistence, like right off the bat, what's the persistence that was established? Cause I think that's easier to see and it's run keys, scheduled tasks, new user added, and then remote management tools, meaning like, you know, people drop any desk or something like that that lets them remote access, you know, those open um, free third-party tools. So they had a cool really break out of that. And then they had a really interesting thing in execution. So they show what are the most common methods. Obviously, you know, malicious file was at the top, but they said it's kind of skewed because a lot of the stuff they're looking at were phishing cases. They're started with phishing. So, of course, there's going to be a malicious file with almost every single one of them. But you, you kind of cut that out and you looked at, you know, cover, PowerShell and WMI were pretty prolific. And they did a good job of saying, well, what was, you know, the common things PowerShell was used for? And it was like download, execute memory or execute Cobalt Strike for post-exploitation stuff. Or there was encoded PowerShell and LNK files for initial payload execution. And then the standard PowerShell, right? And the WMI, you know, they did a pretty good job breaking out what that was used for too, primarily enumeration, persistence, and lateral movement. So when you think about looking at well, gosh, if we need to look at these two different sets, WMI or PowerShell, you know, maybe PowerShell, you're looking more for execution and WMI, you're looking for more enumeration and maybe persistence, right? So that seems like they kind of cover down on different uh, 
targets of behaviors or you know use use cases for why they use one versus the other which I thought was interesting. Like you start thinking about it that way, it kind of helps you narrow your scope for where should you start first as far as how PowerShell or WMI is being used. And then they had a really good note in there, which I really liked how they broke out persistence. And you kind of touched on this when you say, hey, if you see an antivirus alert, you know, when we're talking about one of the, the previous articles, there still might be things to investigate. And, you know, they talked about early stage persistence and then later talked about late stage persistence. And I thought that was great because a lot of times, when something lands, there wants to be that initial persistence in case there's a, a hiccup, right? Like someone clicks on a phishing thing, there might be a hiccup where all of a sudden they drop offline or, you know, they decide to shut down their machine while you're in the middle of something and you want to at least be able to come back and not be shut out by something so simple. So they'll drop schedule tasks or run keys or sometimes there's web shells that call back depending on what you're hitting. Usually that's a, more of a server side. But then they talk about well, what are the later stage persistence? Obviously a lot of that overlaps with early stage persistence, but they added additional things in there. And I thought that was a great uh, breakout because you have to think about it that way. When you see one, you know, days of persistence, you really should, I mean, this is why a lot of times when you know a host is compromised, people are like, just rebuild, right? Maybe you won't find the other stages of persistence or you don't have the time and it's not worth it. And then you can rebuild, rebuild. And that's typically why, even though you're like, well, I found the, you know, the badness, we got rid of it, but that you wanna have faith in your stuff and trust, Last thing you wanna do is get again by the same thing. So I liked how they called that out and kind of walked through that. It was interesting. They talked about the two biggest vulnerabilities used. Both vulnerabilities were dated in 2020 and 2021, and these are all 2022 attacks. So, you know, highlights like, hey, you need to, I don't think it was people were avoiding patching because these vulnerabilities, like the zero log on stuff, they were pretty critical vulnerabilities. I think it was just people were not able to discover all the things they needed to patch. I think it was more of an inventory issue than it was a patching issue. I mean, I say that maybe there's some cases where I'm wrong, but it, I just don't know many people that are that neglectful. Uh, more, you know, they more have a challenge as far as they would have done it if they knew about it. And then discovery, I, yeah, I'm not going to drive through the discovery section, but discovery was a really interesting one because, you know, they're looking at what are the top discovery like commands or things utilized across all the things they analyze. And there's a lot of overlap. And like I was saying before, anytime you can compare, contrast reporting, I feel like Intel shops should do this more when they give a product to their SOC or a hunt team or whatever. It's not like a report by report. They should figure out how to summarize across these and say, all right, here's all the common things because that would be a very powerful report than just here's the very unique thing that they did. It's really interesting. It's like, that's great. Uh, but as long as we can see these common things, we'll find a lot more stuff. So they had a really good job with, you know, cross-referencing across the discovery commands and techniques there. Um, but yeah, I'll stop there because I think anyone should probably go look at this just to kind of massage their brain with really interesting things and a lot of technical stuff that has value. But uh, what were some of your key takeaways? Well, I think you should just go back and read the whole entire report to us. <laughs> yeah. So I was unable to get through all this just because you said the amount of information here and the amount, like, of course, being me, my brain goes in a thousand different ways as I'm trying to read it. You know, it's just phenomenal. If you're new to the deeper report, this would be a great one to start with just to mm -hmm. get an idea of what quality. And I know I said Talus is good because they are rarely bash any reporting like this because it's just so no matter what there's useful information out there but like this right. is really good but like i don't even know looking at all the indicators and like you said the technical stuff 
that you can take away, you know, start building an idea of like, you know, when, you know, how often is scheduled tasks used, but not only when, you know, when is scheduled tasks used, but what are the parameters they use? You know, how often does a threat actor run, you know, on log on? Do they run it every 30 minutes? Um, and not that you have to be specific about that, but just, you know, like you said, big picture of comparing different threat actors and different incidents at, a, at the same time. This is great. And I like to go through and just count the lull bins, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man, they dropped that. Oh, and then they use PowerShell. Oh, then they use reg.exe. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just great to see everything that is going on because I do love reading their reports and picking each one apart and trying to figure out how to hunt, you know, based off that information. But taking a step back and reading something like this is just really valuable as well. Um, but I got nothing other than go read it, enjoy it. It is, it's great. I was looking forward to it whenever they tweeted out last week. Yeah. Uh, that coming. That was, that was exciting. Cool. Yeah. So what do you got next? All right. The next one is a article from Analyst One named Ransomware Centric Collection and Threat Profiling. Now, this was a different article for me because there's not a lot of technical information and it's all more about profiling the threat, as it says in the title. Um, but what really, as I started reading it, I was like, okay, yeah, this is good information. Um, but really stood out to me was figure one, like the first chart or diagram that they have in the report is called the ransomware collection model. It's broken down into four subsections, attack data, attacker hosted infrastructure, forms and markets, and OSINT, the open source intelligence. And I was sitting there thinking like, man, you know, where do I live in this role? You know, I know I'm not out there profiling people. I'm not negotiating with ransomware groups, but you know, I'm still, I'm still threat hunting. I'm trying to figure out how to find the maliciousness and find the bad, right? And, but this chart just blew my mind because what I do is 25% of what is really going on whenever it comes to the ransomware collection, because, you know, it takes you, it takes you through the process of trying to figure out where the ransomware, you know, where this group is running from. You know, once you find that, how can you start defending against, how can you start figuring out who they are? Forms and markets, you know, definitely, or most likely on the, the dark web, you know, how do you move around? How do you gain information from there? And then the OSINT, um, you know, I see myself as pretty niche, niche and seeing this, this whole, just this chart alone just shows me like how wide or how many skills you need to be able to even uh, approach this process. And then of course, they walk you through the process and like the highlights and it's a great article if you ever thought about how can I prioritize and how can I even start figuring out who the threat group is. Like if that's a concern to your, your organization, if you're in an incident response mode and like your organization wants to know, how do you figure it out? You know, they kind of lay it out or well, they pretty much lay it out. Now, most of it's focused on ransomware, but if you can take a step back and say, all right, well, this is how they, you know, with ransomware in mind, what resources do we need to figure out if it's espionage, if it's, um, you know, cybercrime, is this, whatever the case may be, it gives you an idea of at least where to start, right? The 75% that I don't touch is just fascinating to me because they are, this is just a really good article approaching that 75% and telling you, this is what a threat profile looks like. These are the four things. 
summary, identification, behavioral, and uh, pack elements, and that's, that's how they break down the profile of each organization. But I'm always fascinated by stuff that I either don't do or can't do currently. But you know how I would approach this as well as once again is if my goal is to figure out who is attacking us, this is a good document to at least start with. What were your thoughts? So yeah, I you know I I homed in on you know this is more about the group as the group of people than it is more about the attacks themselves. But I did like the structure, the figure you're talking about where they you know break it out the ransomware collection model and then you have the attack data, attack hosted infrastructure, forms or markers and OSN. But I thought about like gosh maybe that could be applied differently within a security operation at an organization where a lot of times it's like here's our secure, here's our SOC, and then it's like a bunch of lines going out, here's all the threats we're concerned about. And maybe it really should be flipped around. Here's all of our threats, and then the lines go out to what does each group within your security organization responsible for when it comes to those threats? You know, do your Intel people, are they aware of the forms and markers or markets? Are they aware of the OSINT that ties to those, to that specific threat? You know, what detections when it comes to the attack data tie to that? be a great way to be able to at least operationally structure how you address what threats you care about. I feel like there's a lot of threats that just come around and you deal with on a regular basis, but when you start identifying who you care about, if you have this kind of information structured in some way, um, it really helps you highlight, especially when some new, like that's the worst thing I think, when you have a threat that you are worried about and know about and you get a report and you don't know where you're covered and where you're not based on the new information like does that does that report highlight any gaps or confirm that what you're doing you know is stays true so you don't have to spend that additional time you know i think structures like these and their kind of approach and organization really help with that and so it shows a very mature uh, mindset as far as you know how do we you know break this down in a way where we can operationalize some of the information versus just having this you know, great knowledge when it comes to reporting. So I really like that part. No, I definitely, uh, definitely agree with that. And definitely got some good points. Uh, that's all for me. What's next? Yeah, so the last one's kind of a funny one. Uh, and I was just kind of, you know, when I was just kind of looking around for things, I came across, you know, the Watch Guards 2023 cybersecurity predictions. And it was interesting to me because it looks like since 2019, They'll kind of make up predictions, like six predictions every year about where they think cybersecurity is going to go, where threats are going to go. And like, for instance, a couple of years ago, they talked about how, you know, VPN and RDP will probably be popular targets because of the remote workforce. And sure enough, there's some truth to that. There's a lot of VPN exploitation that was happening that, you know, led to some breaches. There's a lot of RDP leading to ransomware type of operations. So... The point I really took away from that is I think as threat hunters and people in cybersecurity, it's it's really good to think outside the box and not be so head down in the stuff you're currently working on. Because if you kind of have your feelers out there and are kind of thinking about like, gosh, what, you know, if all these things are being like, for instance, Microsoft, when they put the new controls on the uh, macros being executed in their documents, you know, as a, as a security professional and a threat hunter in itself, you have to start thinking, well, what is going to be the new, you know, avenue if they fish, if they can't do these things? And I feel like we talk about it a lot, too, when it comes to profiling uh, hunts. 
right? Like, how can I understand myself better so that I can detect the next new thing or the next whatever? And so, you know, an example of that phishing example, where I talked about how maybe the, uh, all the Microsoft Office documents aren't going to be as successful because the macros are disabled. Are there going to be other new file types that I'll start seeing? Well, I'm sure if you were to think about that that way and maybe run some reporting to collect, well, what are the top, you know, extensions that we start seeing? And then all of a sudden you start seeing OneNote files, which aren't commonly shared. You kind of be ahead of the game. And it requires that kind of the out of the box thinking about, well, how do I prepare myself for things that might be coming up? And so, for instance, like if PowerShell wasn't a common attack method, but somehow you were, you know, started to realize, well, PowerShell can be really powerful. Let you do a bunch of things and you just profile how PowerShell is being utilized in your environment. I mean, even today doing that gives you some advantages when weird PowerShell activity shows up. So I think the prediction aspect, and they have some some interesting ones that maybe not apply, like, you know, what are the, the cybersecurity now with space? Because space is becoming a new next frontier, right? Um, but, you know, they bring up some interesting concepts like MFA. They they brought up now that they had an earlier report saying everything without the MFA is going to get, you know, compromised. We just see a lot where, oh, well, there was this company breached on this really critical thing from outside and they didn't have multi-factor. So it's kind of like, oh, that was telling, and they were kind of right with some of those predictions. But now they're saying that, you know, MFA is being rolled out everywhere, and some of the predictions they're talking about, we're going to see a lot more aggressive social engineering around MFA. So what might that look like? Uh, so, you know, it's not necessarily easy to come up with the solutions for what predictions could be. But, you know, with threat hunters, we develop hypotheses sometimes. Sometimes we have enough information to be really more concrete. Sometimes we have to be abstract. But if you have to be abstract, it's good to start collecting data and kind of understand, you know, yourself when it comes to whatever it is you're kind of trying to theorize about or predict. So that was kind of my big takeaway and why I wanted to share because I wanted to really highlight there's advantages to kind of thinking like that. And there are hunts you can do that aren't necessarily looking for bad. It's preparing for bad, so to speak. So I'm very glad you shared this one because, like you said, it was very funny. I found this topic. You know, voting to see what's the next big cybersecurity issue, right? And, and I was going to mention the two multi-factor authentication, right? And because on that interesting point, being like, well, you know, not only is that the number one abuse thing, or you know, we attack environments without it, but it's like, hey, you know, we're going to figure out how to do it when organizations do have multi-factor authentication. Right. Yeah, you know, that that logically is you stated is the next step of on being, you know, cyber criminal. Be like, okay, well, this is in place. How do we get around it? And, you know, I thought it was very interesting and then very funny as well. Cause like some like the first big metaverse hack affects business through new productivity use cases. You know, what was it? Facebook had, you know, they all, you know, you see all these tweets and stuff of people sitting at the desk, you know, meeting in the metaverse and stuff. Um, and it just, it's just funny to think about abusing that, right? Like if you just, if everyone's, if that's the new meeting place and someone abuses it, well, you're not having meetings anymore. You can always go back to the last one. Right. Uh, and then, you know, talking about productivity and AI coding tools and like, you know, AI cars, like these are all things that, you know, we kind of see happening already, like, you know, chat GPT, like going through like what that looks like from a, you know, from a perspective of trying to work with it. I think I saw while I was searching for these headlines, ChatGPT went down a couple a while ago or recently and said millions of people couldn't use it. Like you wonder like if that's been adapted as a business process, 
you know, why not attack it? Why not abuse that? And why? Oh, yeah. Talk about a great DDoS uh, proponent. Yeah. Yeah. I know this, this is kind of like you know, off topic, but if we're talking about like, you know, 15 minute cities coming up or like organization or really changing the way we live. And, and this is going back to the AI car, right? Like if people can't get to work, <laughs> it's just like, what's happening? It's a, Think about, like you said, think about what technology is being introduced into this world and how threat actors might abuse it. And then not only that, but saying, hey, let's go vote on it. Very humorous. Thank you for sharing this. This is cracking me up. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a funny, different way to kind of look at cybersecurity and how I think people should just think about things, right? Absolutely. So I think that kind of sums up the five things we were going to talk about. But before we close out, I definitely wanted to mention some of the things that are up and coming just to, you know, in case people don't follow us on any other media. But we do have our live podcast next week, March 16th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's a fun one. We get together. We have a themed drink. We can interact with us live at Discord. And, you know, really bring some of our experience to the table, some of the conversations. It's a lot of fun. I definitely enjoy it, and I'm sure some people can laugh at us publicly about it. But we got that going on. We've got the lateral movements, March 22nd from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You know, headed by Lee Arkanal. This is the hands-on workshop. You can start practicing with some tools and technologies and real data and, and you know, attack scenarios. So it's always good to get your your hands and feet wet with that. And then um, coming up later in March, this is the hybrid hunting webinar we're doing with Newspire, March 29th from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you're interested in any of those, best place to try to find them and register for them is LinkedIn. Search those titles mentioned before, that being, you know, the Out of the Woods podcast, Lateral Movement, and the Hybrid Hunting. Uh, so check us out there. Also, if you like what you hear, definitely leave some good feedback. It helps others find us as well. But thanks, everyone, for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up next week with our live one. And with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of March 6th, 2023. Thanks, everyone. Take care, everyone, and happy hunting. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.